Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication, and tickets are on sale now. The first early bird discount will be available until August 22nd. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. Today, I'm super excited to interview my friend and one of the smartest fellas working in wine, Darren Oemke. A straight-shooting Australian, Darren has experience in all walks of the wine world. Engineering, production, technology, marketing, mentoring, teaching... And in his spare time, he still manages to catch a few waves. In this episode, we'll settle in for a good old Antipodean chat about what we love in wine, what we'd love to see change, and even what we can learn from the surfing community. Let's get into it. Good morning, Darren. (laughs) Good evening, Polly. How are you? I'm well. I'm so glad you just started with that. I think that this is one of these lovely wine moments. It is... 9.38 in the morning on Friday for me, and that makes it, what time? 5.08? 10 past 5, yep, in the afternoon for me. Okay, let's start with the question, the burning question. Why does, it's Adelaide, uh, Southern Australia, is that right? Why do you have that weird half hour time zone thing? Are you guys the only place in the world that does that? Uh, Do you know when you said that to me this morning on Twitter, I realise that we do it. So it is, it's really hard. I have to use apps to help me schedule meetings around the world because that that half hour um, messes with your head. Uh, I think maybe, I hope maybe, not. Yeah, it's just, it's just diabolical. I look at that and I'm like, I, I have a hard enough time with time zones as it is. So that would just mm-hmm. kill my productivity. Um, <laughs> all right, Darren. <laughs> There's an app. Yeah, there's an app. There's an app for everything. Um, I'm pleased to have you on today because we're we're very calm for two people who are not calm when we're having private conversations. You are one of the hardest working people I know in wine. You do so much. So um, you have Hydra, which is consulting for the wine industry, but not just for the wine industry. We're going to talk about that. Yep. You have the Foment Accelerator and Incubator Program. You are a chair for Riverland Wines. What am I missing? Uh, I lecture wine retail at uh, the Adelaide Uni Graduate School of Business. So there's another one. Holy. Oh, my God. Do you sleep? When do you read all those books behind you, Darren? I read them years ago. I haven't read a book since Twitter. (laughs) And on top of all of that, you're a surfer. I am. You surf I, more than you read? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm quite serious. I did read most of those books years ago. I sit down to read now and I, I get on Twitter and um, alternate between rage and amusement, which is much more emotionally enthralling than most books. So, 
I think I think that's Twitter's uh, goal for us. So look at that. <laughs> They've been very customer centric. They've followed our journey and they're meeting us where we are as the audience. So yay for marketing. Um, so I, I want us to talk about all of these fabulous things that you're doing in wine. But I actually want to talk first about surfing. Oh, good. I'm, I know. Friday, it's Friday afternoon. or It's Friday. I have off. coffee. Yeah. You have champagne. Exactly. We're going to talk about surfing. Screw the podcast topics. Um, no. So I was thinking about surfing. My brother-in-law is an avid surfer. I'm from Southern California. I grew up in, you know, beach towns. And when I was prepping for this podcast, I was thinking to myself, surfing, hmm. Very, you know, you've got everyone from your amateur surfers, the people who dream of being surfers, the people who remember the days when they were surfers, all the way through to your elite athletes. You must obviously have a range of products to suit them. There must be some form of education involved in, well, how do you pick the right surfboard and where should you go and the stories of the best surfing in the world. And then I imagine climate change is probably screwing with surfing right now. Is that characterization oh, correct? Oh, don't get me started on uh, La Nina. The, Please the, get started. The, we're, we're going into our third La Nina on the hop, which I don't know has ever happened before. And La Nina just messes with the winds and it messes with the swells. And I'll take, I know I shouldn't say this because in uh, Australia, um, El Nino's drought, but El Nino, the surf is cracking. So everything aligns for El Nino and everything goes to heck when La Nina comes to town. And, of course, it rains in Sydney all the time. It's cold winters. We normally, here for winter, uh, I'd normally grab a, a coat once or twice a year, a woolen jacket, this year I've been wearing woolen jackets for the last month and a half. It's been it's been as cold here for us, unusually cold, as it has been unusually hot for you. Well, perhaps not quite so much. Yeah, um, I, I, I hear it. And then that'll swap because, of course, we were having terrible southern hemisphere summers. Um, but going back to course, kind of this- we, we live on a, on a cliff near a surf break and we're dreadfully concerned about what um, – rising seas might mean for our views. We may we may move from being a whisker back from the beach to having a, an almost perfect view. Wow. Mm. <laughs> it's like when they used to talk about how Nevada was going to become coastal land at the rate that we were going. That, that was the joke when we were growing up. Um, so I just, I kind of want to go back to the surfing thing for a minute. Yeah. Do you have this discussion and surfing. Well, I even I imagine it's probably not even a discussion. Do you see from a business point of view when you look at surfing that there are people who are sitting around talking about, you know, oh, are you doing it because you enjoy it? Should we try to educate them around why this board is better than this other board or this wax is and if they if they just know more, they're going to buy our products. Like does that exist in the world of of surfing marketing? Uh yeah. Yeah, surf, surf marketing. Surfing's actually quite a serious business. Um, if you're in the business side of it, which I've never, I'm not in the business side, but it's a lot like wine, actually. So the business side of surfing has a mixture of these artisan producers right up to these huge multinationals 
the multi, everybody complains that the multinationals are spitting out these cheap, crappy boards that are mass produced, um, that everybody, that almost every surfer on the planet buys. And there's a small group of handcrafted surfboard makers and the boards cost two, three, four times as much as these so-called pop-out boards. The whole structure, the whole mindset is so wine, it would do your head in. The the difference between surfing and wine is that surfing is actually a completely limited resource. There are only, people say the opposite to this, but there are only a certain number of waves that ever strike a particular beach. So as the population of surfers goes up, the ability of individual surfers to catch waves declines. So if you imagine, um, I, I don't like the term wine snob, but I'm going to bloody use it anyway. If you imagine the surfing equivalent of a wine snob, this is somebody that understands waves, they can see where they're breaking, they, you know, they've got a good rhythm, they're in place, they're fit, they can get more waves than anybody. And the people who aren't really good at it, they struggle and they scratch around on the outside. Uh, but because it's a limited resource, the inclination to share is just a little bit less. So there's a tension between the development of the surf industry and the interest of an individual surfer. Whereas in wine, of course, in a lot of ways, the development of wine as a product and its growth and its change is good for everybody. The more wine there is, the merrier people can be. Um, the harder it is to sell, of course. But in surfing, you, you're just crowding people into a limited resource. So it's actually uh, a relatively competitive sport. Um, and it, it's even as a recreation, it's a relatively... Um, let's use the word assertive um, activity. So the people with skills um, get more out, get more outcome. People without skills don't get so much. And, and there's also a tension between people who go out to learn and people who are there and have a lot of experience in breaks. It's, it's a really um, cool dynamic. Um, it's, not a, it's not a great dynamic if you're not reasonably good at it. So do you have like hierarchy of place in a sense that you've got people who they're not trying to learn, they're doing it because they were surfers their whole life. They just kind of want to enjoy it. You know, there's no competitive nature to it. And this strife between those and the ones who are taking it very, very seriously and who gets the good beaches at the right time. Like, is there sort of this competitive nature around the, the scarce waves? Look, a lot of people won't like me saying this, but yeah, there is. So the the most um, challenging and exciting breaks are dominated by the most capable surfers, and and every break along the beach, people people select for the amount of hassle they're prepared to put up with, and the level of skill they have. So you find that the better and more challenging breaks have the better and more capable surfers. And then you'll find that there's breaks. Um, my wife and I surf, we both surf, but when we surf locally, we surf on two different breaks. And I surf on a break that a lot of people refuse to surf because the um, it's a fairly competitive break. There's a lot of surfers out there who are um, jockeying for position and the break right next door, nobody does that. They all just share waves and it's very, it's very loving. Um, and so, you know, you just um, – if you're if you're emotionally adapted to being prepared to 
compete and you enjoy that, then you go to these breaks that are a little bit more competitive. And if you don't, you go to slightly less competitive breaks. And I guess also we have that the producer is not really a factor in any of those decisions because we're not, you know, the 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 waves cannot control how artisanal their wave is or how they message how important that wave is. So we do take out one whole factor in the what makes that those particular waves interesting. I guess what I was looking at, because I was thinking about surfing, but I'm noticing it more and more in everything I do. You know, my husband is getting ready to walk the Camino and there are people who walk the Camino for yep. all different, you know, reasons and all different interests and all different skill sets. And there are, um, this is one of the things that got me thinking. There are people online who their YouTube channels are entirely about getting people physically ready to walk the Camino at whatever level of interest they have. But we have it for music. We have it for audiophiles. We have it for gamings. I think it's interesting because so much of what we talk about in wine, and if we want to go back to wine Twitter, we really can, um, is, (laughs) fuck, why not? Let's do it. It's Friday morning. We're going to be in on it. Um, So much of what we talk about, we think that we're living in this bubble, that this notion of how do we how do we marry the education and the entertainment? How do we talk about how climate change is severely impacting our business? Which I would think for surfing, if I was working with a surfing company, I'd be sitting around and being like, how do we explain to our end user that the thing that is important to them is very much at risk because of climate change and they have to be like more interested and and actually give a shit and what they consume and how they travel and how they buy. Um, I mean, do you think that that's fair to say that we can look around us all over the place and see the exact same issues happening as we are, we're dealing with in wine? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, one of, my, one of the most interesting ones uh, to move away from the idea of climate um, in surfing is um, gender. So gender in surfing is absolutely uh, fascinating because it's an it's a sport where um, well where women and um, and other than the white cultures largely in the in places like Australia and California ha- were excluded from the sport and quite systematically excluded as well. So you go back through the sixties, seventies, eighties, it it was. Um, Aggression. It was pushing people out. It was telling people they didn't belong. Um, who do you think you are? So there was. There's a long culture of um, of that, and the sport. I, in fact, I was the chair of um, Surfing South Australia for a number of years, and I don't think that the sport here nationally has really come to terms with what it means to re-engage with women, let alone um, with um, with you know, non, non-white non uh, communities. So you look at, and I think you can look at wine and, and see something actually really quite similar. It it wasn't just that women weren't present, it's also that they weren't welcome. And in a sport like surfing, which is, it's actually, a, it's it's a bit like football. It's relatively macho and, and certainly back then it was very much more so. So that's a uh, it, it's a deliberate process of intimidation that went on and a, and a relegation 
of um, of women to the beach, and this is kind of in your post Gidget era um, of mm. surfing. So, I think that I think that you see the same dynamic in terms of I how, guess you would probably how this has happened. Yeah, I guess you would probably also see the the hypersexualization of, in this case, the women who are in the space, and, and we get this in wine with you know like the boob glasses and the the super sexual advertising and the whole thing where they exist in the space. And, and perhaps this is going back sometime. It may not be where you are now, but they exist in the space, but they exist for a reason of drawing the majority into that space. You know, I'm thinking about Tawny Katane on the cover of cars in 1980s, you know, glam rock videos that there weren't really any women in rock unless they were dancing and writhing for the purpose of the male gaze. Um, so it, with that, another thing that I have to point out, uh, we've been very open about this. You and I are of the same similar age. We're Gen Xers, you know, is it a young person's sport? Is it the kind of thing or is it just nowadays it's all of you grown up hippie surfers are out there and you're all Gen Xers? Is there any ageism that goes on in it? Um, well, there's it's definitely plenty of boomers in the water where I surf because I mostly surf longboards these days. And um, so there's certainly plenty of blokes older than me. Um, I, I would say in longboarding, it's not a, there's not a lot of young people. So it's probably Gen X. It's probably dominated by people my age. Um, riding shorter boards is is a mixed age. So the older crew haven't given up. There's a lot of people who've taken surfing, like I did actually, taken to it relatively old. And there's people my age who are trying to learn to surf as well. So I don't think there's that um, there's that ageism um, to the extent that you might think. Is it the other way around where you've got producers sitting around saying, ooh, all of our longboard surfers are aging and their doctors are telling them that maybe they need to be careful how much they're in the water or they're breaking hips or they have, you know, like not saying that you're of an age to break a hip, but the things that we're dealing with again, I'm I'm just really thinking about this, that this is so close to wine. This is what we're dealing with. We have an aging population. We've got uh, health advice that's telling them to drink less. We've got women who, because of menopause, are possibly drinking less or responding to it differently. I'm just so curious to know how these exist in other realms. Well, in the realm of surfing, surfing is a good, right? Whereas wine is in the neo-prohibitionist era that we seem to be in, wine is a bad. So, so surfing's broadly regarded as a positive in Australia. It's a good thing to do. So, you know, we have programs to get people active and the ocean is part of the mindset in Australia in terms of getting people active. So I, I don't think you see the same, you see the opposite trend, but, but you see a lot of resistance to the trend because you know, honestly, um, I used to, used to be quite, um, a lot of cognitive dissonance for me when I was um, involved in the administration of, of surfing as a sport because as a surfer, I don't actually care if anybody else ever comes out there. Like, in fact, the best days are the days that most people consider the surf to be rubbish and I'm out there on my own or with a couple of mates 
instead of with a crowd. So there's no, from the point of view of an individual surfer, there's a desire for there to be less people in the sport. From the point of view of the surf industry, which is a beast, um, there's a desire to get as many people in the sport as possible. And in the in the sport itself, as a as a sporting activity, of course, we're always wanting to bring people along. In longboarding, everybody sits there and mourns that there's no young people coming into longboarding, except for me. And I'm like, well, you know, who really cares? Young people, no young people. What does it matter? Why do they have to be? Why do we have to have another generation of surfers coming through? I'm happy. Get them off my beach. Yeah. Whereas, whereas in wine, I, I'm you know I'm deeply involved in the business of wine. I take very much the opposite view. Um, in fact, if we compare that to wine, I, I think that wine has an enormous problem um, with recruiting new drinkers because we have no focus on recruitment. So, in as a surfer, I'm like, don't recruit new surfers. Just let let them do something else. Ballet, anything, not surfing, wine. It's like, where are the new drinkers coming from? I wonder. I wonder how many people who are drinkers would hear that and be like, actually, you know what? I don't really want more people competing for my table at my favorite wine bar or the uh, reduced number of spaces that we have at wineries because of hospital <laughs> and labor and everything else. Um, I am twenty minutes in. I am going to move on to That's wine. So you, what I'd like to focus on, obviously we can talk about Hydra and for the benefit of all of the audience who doesn't know what you do, tell me what Hydra and, and then tell me what the Foment Accelerators do. Oh, great. So somebody that coaches people in pitching has to pitch. It's a mechanics car in our, in our place with pitching. Hydra is a consulting business. We're a, a business consulting company in wine. We work across the whole vertical. So we actually do everything from uh, consulting on wine production all the way through to international sales of wine, uh, everything except the grape growing and the winemaking. So we work on everything else uh, in the wine game. We also work in uh, food uh, quite a bit uh, and a little bit in the research space because I'm, I'm an ex-researcher uh, just generally. Um, and the really strange one, though, is that we do a lot of work in advanced metals manufacturing. So we're kind of wine and advanced metals manufacturing and food. And is that because you have a very large brain and you're really Dr. Darren? Is that because your your background and this is part of what you love? Yeah, well, look, we got in the reason we ended up in advanced metals is we we do a lot of work with startups. So, We've always worked with startup companies, whether they be manufacturing startups, tech startups, platform startups, a lot of, obviously with Foment, a lot of wine sector startups. Uh, and some of the startups we were working with um, IPO'd and my business partner and I, both engineers, and they started asking us to help them sort out their manufacturing facilities. And so we started helping them build plants. So we, we <sighs> build wineries, we build packaging lines, we build... Um, 3D metals printing plants. So. Damn, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I've already made you go off on the surfing tangent, so I'm not going to make you go off on the advanced no, metals God, tangent. No, God, but, no. But Foment, which I've had the privilege of working with you and in, in some of your programs, tell us about that. 
Okay, so Foment is um, it's it's now an accelerator and incubator for wine tech. We set Foment up because we felt there was a real gap in the wine industry. So again, taking a really Australian centric viewpoint, in Australia we've got magnificent research institutions servicing the wine industry. We've got a really vibrant supply sector who do all the sustaining innovation and build all the the products for the wine industry. But we had very, very little activity from tech startups in the sector. And so a couple of us decided that it was time there were some tech startups in the sector. And so we started building Foment. It took us a few years to get it going and find uh, it has funding support from the state government and federal governments. And it took us a while just to get that rolling. And now, and it's not huge. We do about 15 companies a year through the um, through the accelerator. And we run them we run them through their paces in terms of the usual startup stuff about getting them to um, problem solution and product market and run them through that. But we do it just fully embedded in the in the wine sector. So um, most of our mentors are wine people. Um, so if you know people like yourself. Um, you know, different people from the PICS team and other people from around the world help us out in terms of, uh, like I say, putting these companies through their paces. And so what we're looking for is is tech companies, whether it be what they call deep tech, which is things like hardware and um, or platforms, is to bring companies in. And the sort of what we've had in the last few years, we've had a number of companies move to South Australia to set up some part of their global activity. So people who've participated in Foment or who are our mates have come to South Australia and now there's a little uh, a cluster of these startup companies in South Australia. And what we do too through our networks in the wine industry is we get them involved in projects. So one of the companies that was in our accelerator last year, we've actually got them building a, a little um, a platform to support export work um, for putting tasting notes and um, the information that we need for trade tastings onto a phone so that we can manage them much more effectively than having to print um, documents all the time. A couple of them have had multiple rounds of additional funding, you know, Series A, Series B, the, the million-dollar-plus type funding rounds that companies get. And there's a, there's a level of excitement around startups in the wine industry in South Australia and in Australia that we've been a really big part of um, and really enjoyed being involved with. So I'm curious about the the newcomers. So people who come to you interested in being involved with Foment, are they coming with passion and love, you know, kind of that I'm so interested by the wine industry, or are they coming with, I see a gap in the market I'm not romantically attached to wine, but this is a good business space. I'm not sure that they're mutually exclusive. Um, so we tend to get, we do tend to get people that are passionate about wine, uh, but we also get people who uh, realise that it's a space in which they can make a difference. So wine, uh, again, in, in Australia and South Australia, it's, it's not like France, but wine is big business here. Wine's important and wine's interesting. So people come to it with 
I mean, we, we've got a company who's worked with us a couple of years ago. They're bringing wine tasting uh, and um, selecting wines to Alexa. So they were putting together a voice. We had two voice-based companies a couple of years ago, and it was really, for me, it was fascinating to learn about voice. And they're people who both have an interest in wine and who have an interest in the technology. So that um, Alexa project, they actually had something in the football space and they wanted to transition to the wine space uh, with a new product. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. The, the reason I ask is, and I know that you will encounter this, There, we often will also um, find ourselves in meetings or having conversations with people who are so in love with wine and that they perceive a different business reality than what we really deal with um, trying to sell wine, trying to sell wine across markets. What are the, <clears throat> so people come in, they get involved with Foment or you're working with them at Hydra. What do they convey to you are the most surprising challenges or impediments, the things that they had not known or anticipated about going into the wine industry? Wine's actually pretty sophisticated as an as an industry. Like it's not it's not simple. So you look at it and you say, oh wine, yum. And you get into the sector. It it really, to me, I think what people don't understand is the sophistication around wine. Um, wine Australia like to say it's one of only three uh, sectors in Australia that you need a license to export. Um, the other ones are guns and I can't remember the third one. So so from the point of view here, you, you've got this whole licensing process to export and then you've got the label integrity processes that sit alongside that. You've got the international competition for, you know, the, the state and country-based competition for hearts and minds that doesn't exist in a lot of other sectors where there's these regional... Um, national multiple organisations who are involved in wine. I mean, there's um, 65 plus wine regions in Australia. There's over 100 wine organisations. There's companies that are, you know, that the wine is a secondary uh, source of income through to companies like uh, Treasury and Southcorp that, uh, sorry, Treasury Wine Estates that are that are as as um, multinational as the big multinationals I used to work for when I was younger. So, and then you've got all of the intricacies of how wine law fits with how people do things. I don't think people expect the sheer level of sophistication of the sector. Uh, and it is a particularly sophisticated sector. That's so interesting because we know that there's this constant um, demand for sharing stories that are warm and you know of our families and it's the hands with grapes and it's you know estate grown and it's almost like what we're doing is that you know many wine brands are very intentionally going out with this homespun small industry kind of story because that relates to what the consumers want to think about our industry but then on the other side to what extent are we diminishing the significance of wine as an industry? And I'll actually tell a story about this. Um, I was discussing this with Nigel Greening from Felton Road. 
When my kids were going through high school, they would always do these career dates, right? Whether it's public high schools or whether it's, you know, fancy private high schools, they all do career days. And I was never allowed to go and talk about it. I am a female founder. I have a good business, but I work in alcohol. How, you know, if we look at the age that people are coming in, what they know about the wine industry versus what they, what we're presenting about the wine industry, how do we actually get younger audiences or the next generation or really anyone understanding what a strong and sophisticated industry we have when from day one we're challenged to communicate that. <laughs> oh, and uh, I'm going to add to that and a, uh, a sense of disparagement of parts of the industry for those parts of the industry that make the wine. 100%. That actually- that actually people love. So, you know, we've got a at Riverland Wine, we've got a fascinating new program called Riverland Uprising. And that's about supporting some of those um, more boutique and branded uh, wineries from the region who are putting the Riverland brand on the wine. And Riverland has traditionally been one of these uh, bulk wine producing regions. And I, I was talking to another journalist recently and just saying, look, we make these, this region has some cool wine producers that make these really cool wines. And then we have all the, these really cool, funky uh, new types of wine. And then we've got all these really, really cool wineries that make the wine that the world drinks on a day-to-day basis that, that are also doing really cool stuff. And I, I, find, it, I find it frustrating that and, and and you look at a region like Riverland, they're used to there's the communities used to being told, oh you you make you just make that wine, you know, the bulk wine. And 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 no, we don't. We you make, just we, make the yeah. bulk wine. I mean, that and, in itself, right, is is so telling. And we don't. We we make the bloody wine that everybody has in their glass at every frigging barbecue around the planet. That the the wines that the average person chooses, and I'm, for me personally, I'm as proud to be involved with that as I am to be involved. And you know, I'm, I've got boutique producers that are producing. You know, their their export, um, their export allocation is 300 cases. We work with with across the whole sector. They're all bloody wonderful companies. And so now we we get into actually looking at this side of the sector that is big. And you've got these agricultural communities, you want them to be proud and to aspire to work in that sector. And it's a great sector to work in. Why wouldn't why wouldn't a young kid want to work in a winery like um, Treasury Wine Estates, um, huge winery, or the huge wineries in the Riverland that produce all of those large amounts of fruit? It's a, a magnificent career and it's based in the country. You don't have to go to town. You don't have to leave your family. And you can you can do something fantastic. So we really, we really as a as an industry have to look at it and say it's not either or. It it just all fits together. And my attitude to exporting Australian wine is that Australian wine should be present from the bottom rack to the very top rack in whatever the wine store is. If it's the corner wine store in um, God only knows where USA. We want to be at the bottom and the top. And if we're in a in the um, best wine shop in London, we want to be from the bottom to the top. There's no, 
there's no such thing as a wine exporting country or nation that doesn't own the bloody shelf, the whole shelf. So you don't feel like that's happening? Because, I, I mean, I can oh, no, I think say do. I'm not we an expert it. in Australian wine. So. No, no, we own it from top to bottom. That, that's absolutely yeah. happening. And But so we bloody should. Not, not, oh, no, we should only focus on the, on the higher shelves. We should focus on everything. They are all adding value to rural, the rural sector. They're all providing uh, a bevy that people enjoy. That's no, it's no different to people enjoying having a beer, which is, you know, as you know, a much more manufactured product than wine. Well, and to be fair, living here in Europe, especially in the summer, in my household, beer is kicking wine's ass because it is, I can get in one serving bottle. I can get everything from the cheapest Spanish beer. <laughs> Man, you see people drinking at like nine in the morning. It's something else, right? All the way up to Barcelona and artisanal beer. I've got sour beer, fancy, you know, natural wine and sour beer shops in the corner. But the point is that it is a micro expense compared to the range of the very cheap to the very expensive wines. And and mm. I I don't mean for us to go off so much on the alternative packaging route, but if we're talking about an, a single drinker, you know, I'm going to drink a cheap wine sometimes. I'm drinking a, or a, a cheap wine or a cheap beer sometimes, an expensive wine or an expensive beer sometimes. With that in mind, because you see dozens and dozens of brands, you know, come through Hydra and Foment every year. What have you seen in the evolution of sophistication and business in wine in the past, say, years since March of 2020 when everything went to hell and back. Um, all right. So one of the one of the things I like about the sophistication of business, I, I think that the alternative packaging formats turning up is fantastic. Um, what I what I wish I'd seen, and if anybody wants to work on it, I'm here for it. I really want to see a 330 mil can with less than 100 calories at four and a half percent alcohol um, that. Um, has 1.8 standard drinks. The you know that it's bizarre to me that that kind of product that sits in the space that the low cal seltzers sit doesn't exist in as a wine product. I'm really surprised. Um, I think, but the thing, the sort of things that are really happening that are interesting. I think the low elk and de elk uh, are really fascinating. I'm not sure how huge they're going to become, but they're definitely getting interesting and they're interesting here. And from a from a wine as a manufactured product like some of the wineries are, it's a good fit because you are manufacturing. That's like beer is a manufactured drink. So there's no big deal. I love wine in a can. I work with a wine, a natural wine in a can supplier in Western Australia. Um, the whole idea of natural wine in a can to me is actually a really good fit from a marketing perspective because um, aluminium is much is is very recycled in Australia so it it fits that sensitivity to the environment um, message uh, I'm a bit frustrated that people are so down on glass I think there's a lot that can be done in glass and if we look at the long term glass is not always going to be so carbon intensive if if you imagine you know glass is on a on a journey to from um, gas to electricity, and electricity is on a journey from non-renewables to renewables. So in the longer term, glass glass shouldn't be a real problem from a carbon footprint point of view. 
It's just going to take a few more years to get there. Can I jump in on that? Are you having discussions or are you seeing discussions in Australia around recycling of bottles? Because I'm hearing this come up more and more and more. There's um, there are many producers who are interested in it. And it's it's honestly just like so polar. The yes, we must do it. And no, I'll never touch it kind of camp. Is this something that's being bandied about in Oz? Never touch what? Sorry, Polly. The the recycling bottles. So not recycling oh, glass, reusing, but literally. Reusing yeah, bottles. yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Reusing bottles. Reusing bottles. Oh, I mean, that's what we did when I was a kid. We took the bottles back and got them refilled with soft drink. Um, so I'm kind of the idea, and in fact, in the in the Australian sector, the old um, flagons used to be recycled mm-hmm. and refilled. Um, I think that the logistics of that's hard. So, you know, you get um, – we challenge our students. We, we, we In wine retailing, when we teach it, we challenge students to answer the question, could Drizzly succeed in Australia? Um, and so you get them starting to think about the fact that Australia has much lower population density than the cities that Drizzly grew up in and start to think about, could it succeed here? And could it be as successful? And they sort of start to realise that there's a population density issue relating to that, and perhaps there's population density issues relating to recycling glass. But it's the whole the whole manufacturing process these days is more set to recycling. So the focus largely over here is on recycling glass, and I think where it comes to refillable containers, the focus is on kegs for refillables. And, and you're seeing a growth in kegs? We're certainly seeing companies that are very active in the keg market. There's kegs uh, for the uh, for the pubs. Uh, there's more pubs moving to kegs for wine. Yeah, um, I, I've talked about this before. So if you ever get to Auckland, you must go there. I interviewed Diva Giles. This was earlier this year. She runs an award-winning wine bar in Auckland. She's 25 years old. And one of the things that I love to see is that she's got keg natural wine, Australian. I think that it sells for $15 a glass, not a cheap glass pour. Fabulous. And she just goes through a ton of it. And I would sit there watching. It was a a kegged rosé. And I'm like, this is so viable. This is such a great way to ship, to preserve for her profitability. Like it's one of these things that when I'm talking to clients, I'm like, if you can do absolutely 100% go for it. Um, what about between kind of the teaching and everything else that you're doing, what trends are you seeing in how wine brands are learning to communicate with their customers or even become just more customer centric in all of their practices? I think they're learning that they have to actually tell their story. Uh, certainly if they're working with us, they learn that they have to tell their story. Um, it's I think that we we do uh, a fair bit of pitch coaching with wine producers and we ban a pile of words. You're not allowed to say that you're innovative. You're not allowed to say that you're family. You're not allowed to use the word vineyard. You've actually got to pitch your wine as if it's something that people might be interested in, not one of these um, lazy tropes that the wine industry uses to describe itself. We're fine wine. Well, you know, thanks a lot, you're fine wine. There's an awful lot of that out there. Um, what's special about you? So I th- I think that wine companies are learning that they've got to do that. 
Um, but I've, when you talk about storytelling, yeah, I, I mean, I think that storytelling and wine is kind of all over the board. Like, what kind of storytelling? What about the story? Is it about the kind of the yellowtail, be happy storytelling? Is it about, you know, we had to wrestle this land from what it was to what it is now? Like, what's that, that sort of story that, that seems to work? Or that when you're advising people, what kind of story are you recommending? It's funny you say that. I am actually am reading a book at the moment. It's called Imperial Wine, and it's about how the British Empire made wine's new world. And that conquering and taming new countries is quite the theme in the- um, Manifest destiny the of British wine. British Empire conquering Australia with wine. Um, you, know, you know, for me, the whole thing about storytelling is just striking the chord within yourself that that resonates. At the end of the day, we make wine. There's a there's a tribe, there's a, a group of people that we actually want to communicate to. There's a group of people that we're making our wine for. Um, let's tell them the story and connect with it. Let's not get – I think wine gets caught up too much in what it is. So we did a lot of work with cider producers a couple of years ago and you get a cider producer to sit down and say, hey, tell us your story and they tell you a story. They'll say, oh, we made this cider. We, we were growing apple trees and we decided to make cider and then we decided to make it in this style and we built this and it went from A to B and we're pretty happy about it now. And um, the people who love us love this. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's a good story. And and they've their communication, you didn't really have to teach them about communicating with a tribe. They'd already done it. They'd connected with their tribe. They just needed to refine it a bit. Whereas if you, you go to wine, I think you find people start to talk in tropes. So you're a fine wine producer. You're a, a natural wine producer. You're a this wine producer. So you... You come to people seem to come to wine already wanting to put themselves in a box. So I'm in this box. Well, why are you in that box? What I make natural wine. Well, you know, seriously, I don't give a shit if you make natural wine. In in fact, in Australia, a lot of people won't say they make natural wine because there's been so much bullshit pushed on natural wine producers as though again, as though they're not worthy. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, they're making wine that they love to make. They're telling a great story. But but again- And people are buying it. And people, people are buying it also. Really oh, important part of that. It's pretty friggin' yummy too, so, um, a lot of it. Um, but we, instead of saying, hey, I'm making this for you to some sort of community or tribe, it's like I'm making fine wine. And and that doesn't that just doesn't resonate with people. But we we have an industry that, for better or worse, is dominated by rules and to an extent by gatekeepers. You know, like yep. we want to put things into very clear pockets. And when people try to not do that, I mean, I don't know if you just saw the Esther Mobley article in the San Francisco Times about uh, erosion who is making beer or excuse me, making wine in the way that we make beer. That, like that was sort of the language yep. that was used to describe yeah. it. Right. And I look at that and I'm like, fuck yeah, like that's awesome, you know? And yet wine is like, well, is this good that we're doing this? And I don't know that we should be doing this. How do we allow uh, an entrant, a new entrant into our industry 
to succeed and find their feet when as an industry ourselves, we're the one restricting what we think they should do and how they should talk about it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you're right. There's, there's gatekeepers because it's such a regulated industry. And, and we've been deliberate about that. I mean, there's so much counterfeiting of wine that happened historically that there is actually really good reason for the level of regulation. Um, you know, it's funny, I just had a, a tech company I was talking to and we were talking to them about finding their tribe. Who's your tribe? Tell me, tell me who it is, who's your club? Who are the people that are going to love you? And then you've just got to find the pathway. And you, But you do. I mean, if you're in America, you've then got to find your way through some sort of distribution train to find your way there. So we do put up a lot of challenges. But I think I think the challenges that come from the distribution system are, are just like any other business. You've, you've got constraints. So we work through those constraints. The challenges that I don't like are the ones where there's a lot of people saying this is right and this is wrong. And some of them are friends, um, people I quite enjoy engaging with. Uh, but there's, it, yes, wine, wine has a legal definition. So if it's wine, it's within that legal definition. And that's really, that really is important um, in the wine sector. But I, I get disappointed that we just don't celebrate. It's like, ah, oh, that's cool. Oh, I hope they, I really hope they succeed. And I'm lucky because it's my job to just work with people to say, hey, how can you succeed? How, how, can, we, how can we make this succeed? So I guess in, in some ways I see things a little bit differently because my, my entire approach to it is how can we make this succeed and how can we, you asked about what's changed since 2020, but I'm not quite sure that the changes hadn't started before then. You know, how, how can I succeed well? You know, there's a cool little company in the States called Liberation Distribution, and you can get into 10 states with them. Hey, listen to the Aussie Wine Chat podcast for Cheryl Dersey on that one. Um, but the um, – and then – but what you then have to focus on is actually communicating with your tribe and finding them and finding where they're going to consume it and what they're going to do. But it's it's just marketing. It's not really – it's not really that hard. In in a lot of ways, wine, again, you get that anti-marketing bent with a lot of wine and wine writing. But, you know, at the end of the day, just get out and market it. There's all of those marketing deniers out there are kidding themselves. You, you know, I like, I like what Robert um, once said. He said, the minute you put a name outside your cellar, you're doing marketing. Yeah. Uh, so. I'm sorry. I'm just writing down. Marketing denier. We're about to um, we're about to launch a merch line that's kind of a gag, and a lot of it comes from all of these tropes that we're talking about. So I'm going to send you a t-shirt on it. This is marketing denier. I love t-shirts. I think that's a, that's fucking I'm hysterical. A, I'm wearing I'm actually wearing a Simon Tully Adelaide Hills t-shirt. Nice. So I collect. I, I I put on a bit of weight during COVID, and I don't fit into my dress shirts anymore. So I just started wearing uh, t-shirts from wineries to work every day. God bless you. Didn't we all? Good Lord. Yep. I think that this is where everyone is. Um, so <laughs> I, I know that I know that I've kept you talking for a long time. If you had to put on from everything that you're seeing, what's changing, how you're actually helping it change, because I think that's really important. And I also want to say, I do think that when we're sitting here talking about how brands are changing and, and how the approach is changing and how consumers are changing, 
it's so valuable that we have people who themselves are not entrenched in these systems who are, you know, who are willing to say, screw the way everything has been done, be compliant, but otherwise, you know what? Go out, find your people, know how big it is, be able to reach them, you know, it is so very important. So um, a la Johnny Carson, if you had to put on your magic psychic hat and say to us, well, where do you think this is all going? Like what if you're, you know, future casting, um, what do you think is coming down the line in the next three to five years? I, I, first of all, I think we're going to learn how to market wine to younger consumers. Um, much as Rob McMillan's views may be unpopular with some people, he's right. We're not converting the next generation of drinkers. They are omnivorous. So I, I think you'll actually see wine as a sector wake up to needing to contest for uh, love from um, new consumers. So I think I personally think that'll be a big shift. And we do hear uh, people around the sector, particularly in the bigger companies that have the resources to think about those kinds of things, starting to talk about wine's recruitment problem. So there's one for me. I, I think we will actually learn to recruit young people, but I think, I think it's happening anyway because we've already spoken about it. It's called natural wine. Well, hold on. Something that, because I've got two, right? I've got a 19 year old and a 20 year old who in New Zealand are of legal drinking age. And yep. I talk to them all the time. You know, what are your friends saying? What do they think about this, that, whatever? And I recently had an interesting conversation with my 20 year old where she said, you know what, mom, I was out with some girlfriends and someone made a joke about lavender colored wine. And one of my girlfriends said, I would absolutely drink that. You know why? Because it's pretty. And it's interesting to me how much we forget that very first sense, which is it's pretty. And it's the reason we look at the explosion of rosé. Nobody really wants blue wine. Nobody really wants lavender wine. But pretty labels matter to the younger Instagram generation. And that alone is so hard for a lot of traditional artisanal wine brands to get behind well look i don't uh, yeah i but i don't think that the pretty has to just be that gorgeous color in the bottle I no had, not at all it a, can be the label it can be the well, marketing yeah. it can be the and messaging I, it can be the whole thing I, I think the label is really important it's something that i learned from a retailer in the u.s uh talking because we'd noticed that the labels in the u.s were starting to get prettier and prettier and prettier and the labels in Australia, I don't think, have been keeping up with that trend of being more interesting and more attractive. And so I asked them about why, why the difference, and they said, "Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of set piece events in the U.S. wine culture, right? In Australian wine culture, there's a lot more barbecues, but there's a lot of set piece events, um, and the actual bottle of wine is part of the place setting, so it becomes part of." Of that, and so the wine itself, the bottle, has to be attractive in order to be part of the table setting at a dinner party. Now, it's not something that's in the mindset of an Australian. It's not. We definitely don't think that the wine has to be pretty because it's probably going to be shoved in an esky full of ice at a barbecue anyway. Um, so, particularly where I live, because we're outside all the time. 
And and also pretty means different things to different people. So what's pretty to my 20 year old is not necessarily going to be pretty to my husband or, you know, just no. looking at that. So it's a whole nother layer that, yeah. uh, of complexity that we're adding to our products and our presentation. My my daughter's an artist and she's um, she's sort of wound her way to art through uh, beer and wine. And uh, she's actually painting wine labels for her mates her age now. And so these labels just look amazing. And uh, that that wholesome, you know, the the whole experience of the art label with the with the well crafted wine, they they put it together and it makes a lot of sense to them. That's the way yeah. that's that's a mindset. So I, you know, I think that there's a lot happening in that space. But but what we can what we can take from that, and then I'll let you get on with your psychic, you know, but ideas. But what we can take from that that's interesting is um I'm assuming because we're of a similar age, that our children are of a similar age. Yep. There are brands who've hired your daughter to create their labels. Yep. Like that in itself is a, a, is a mindful decision for reaching, recruiting from that, that next generation. Anyway, continue. Oh, Psychic no, I've got, Darren. I've got no idea what I was talking about. Oh, we were talking about the future. Um, mm-hmm. Well... Um, I, th- I think that the there's no way that the trend towards um, internet as a tool for engaging with consumers goes away. So we've all done this, you know, 10 years of development of our online profiles. Um, I think wine's still got a lot of catching up to do. I, I look at other consumer goods and you see the instinct to go and create things that are mobile first. Whereas I think that we're still in wine creating things that are designed for distributors first rather than for accessibility for our consumer and our target consumer. So I, I would expect our distributors to start expecting us to be doing a lot more to engage with consumers. And again, looking at a market like the US with the distributor consolidation, you've got no choice but to mm-hmm. actually find your tribe and communicate with them. So I'm... I would say I've been expecting that f- for a long time. I'm probably hopeful that it'll happen more than predicting it now. Do you think that that will also alter our contractual relationships with our representatives in market? Because one of the things that I notice is that we have these um, contracts or expectations in place that were pre-digital. And so there's actually no component, you know, within a contract for who handles what or how. So I'm thinking about who handles social media comms, who handles, you know, things. Data privacy is a really, really big issue. So who actually owns the data? Who's responsible for the cost and the ongoing maintenance? Like that's sort of the geeky shit that I'm looking at when I'm like, this is what's coming down the pike. I think maybe not in the immediate future, but at some point, we're going to have to restructure the margins and expectations to allocate a whole set of work that was never a part of these relationships before. Oh, absolutely. There's there's no two ways about it. Now you're the expert on all of that. I'm I'm a dilettante in your space. Um, you know, I, I've we haven't quite got there with um, integrated packaging yet, but. Brown Brothers in Australia has a product out where you can, um, the bottles are, have got an NFC chip on them 
um, or a QR code. I can't remember actually. Uh, and you can actually embed a video in that QR code and then send it as a gift and say, "Hey, I put a I put a video on the wine bottle. Have a look at the video." Now I don't know whether that stuff succeeds or not, but that that change in the relationship that that you have that ability to work with the bottle. I mean, we've got software about to come out where for tastings, again, we put a QR code on the bottle and people who are at a trade tasting can start to get some information straight onto their phone off the bottle about the wine, which gives them a depth of information that didn't exist before. Uh, I think the the privacy stuff is about to hit us hard here because we're about to start changing our labels to suit yet more regulations uh, in, in Europe. Uh, so... I, I, for me, it becomes we we have more and more and more consumer engagement. There's no there's no way around it. I, I, the thing that I often look at, Polly, is so none of us were born when Facebook hit a billion daily active users. So there's none of us who actually intrinsically get it. We didn't grow up with this. We grew up with Tally, um, and that's everybody, no matter what age they are. They weren't, if they're in marketing today, they weren't born when Facebook hit a million daily active users. So none of us really know what we're doing. It's, it's constant adaptation. Uh, I at agree. A, at a pace that we, that we don't understand, really. Yep. yep. I, mean, you, I, you I agree right? 100%. No, we're, no, no. And, and I think it's, I, I love that. And I know that it's getting late on a Friday night for you, so I'm not going to keep you much longer. But I love that you said that. Because I think that it's true. I think it's an unrealistic expectation that maybe clients have of anyone who's advising them or implementing the work for them in marketing right now, which is it changes all the time. And what we get really what we get paid for is to understand how it's changing and what that means for the brand. We don't we don't get paid to be an expert on what was perfect six months ago. And if you're working with a marketer who's not learning you're, you're going to crash and burn. Um, on that I got, note. i got two things to say. I think everybody okay. will become less risk averse in the marketing technologies they use. And I also think that the um, individual winery having an individual club, uh, the days of that are over. So we'll start to see Ooh. a whole lot of really interesting stuff happen in the club space. Um, but that's my favourite prediction that um, gets that reaction. Hmm. Are you know, really? we're going to have to, we have to find another podcast to go on. So I've done yours. You've done mine. Now we need to find <laughs> a third podcast to go on so that we can talk about wine club. Um, so anyone who wants the two of us to come on and hash this out in their space, <laughs> get it. in touch with one of us. <laughs> exactly. On that note, on that note, go enjoy your champagne. Enjoy your Friday night company. I just think you're awesome. I love having people who are doing so much good work in the wine business space. I'm glad to have you as a friend, Darren. Thank you. Oh, Polly, it's brilliant talking to you. Um, have a great Friday. And I had better go and answer the front door because now they're trying to ring me. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. And a great big thank you to my friend, Darren, for joining me today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. We 
hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, the first early bird discount on tickets will be available until August 22nd. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.